Welcome to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast where small business owners are celebrated as the backbone of the American economy. Each week, we introduce you to tycoons who share their stories and advice so that small business owners may learn from their experiences. Tycoons is powered by Backbone Planning Partners, Fintrepid Solutions, and Pivotal Advisors. Join us now as our hosts connect you to today's tycoons. Good afternoon, tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm your host here, as always, Austin Peterson, coming to you live from Gilbert, Arizona. It's cooled off a bit here in Arizona this last week, but uh, we've got a ton of rain. Monsoon season is uh, well in, uh, in place here, and the humidity is off the charts. Now, I'm sure it's not anything like uh, where our guest is coming from, and we'll talk about that here in just a second. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast and you're wondering what it is we do here at Tycoons of Small Biz, we are a podcast that's put together by small business owners for small business owners. We believe that the backbone of the American economy is the small business owner, and we want to make sure that we have an opportunity or give them an opportunity to have a platform to share their story, to share their successes, to share their failures, and have other small business owners and entrepreneurs throughout the country are able to listen to these episodes and learn something and have it kind of lift them up and give them an opportunity to continue to grow their businesses because 99% of businesses in our country are small businesses and we need to be, we need to celebrate them and give them an opportunity to uh, you know be lifted up so to speak. So with that being said, we're about 120 episodes in. We've had a great ride and we are excited to welcome a tycoon into the program today. We've got Brian Clayton coming to us from Nashville, Tennessee. Brian Clayton is co-founder and CEO of uh, GreenPal. If you haven't heard of GreenPal, it's an online marketplace that connects homeowners with local lawn care professionals. GreenPal has been called the Uber for lawn care by Entrepreneur Magazine and has over 200,000 active users completing thousands of transactions per day. So, Brian, with that intro, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Yeah, excited to, uh, to connect with you and talk a little bit more about this. You know, I think that You've got a great story. We've connected, obviously, in our pre-qualification, and and you know our listeners know by now that you submit information that we've been able to to learn more about you. And I know you've got a great story. But before we jump into kind of the business side of things, we always have our guests tell a little bit about themselves personally. So whatever that means to you, if you want to tell us about your family, where you grew up, if you're married, do you have kids? You know, where did you go to college? If you went to college, what did you study? Whatever you'd like us to know about you personally, we'd love to hear it. So I grew up in Middle Tennessee, outside of Nashville, Tennessee, in a town called Murfreesboro. And that's actually where I started my first business, which was a lawn mowing business. My dad came into my bedroom on a hot summer day and said, get off your butt. I've got a gig for you. You're going to go mow the neighbor's yard and made me go cut the neighbor's grass. And luckily he did that because that I got paid 20 bucks for an hour's work. And I thought, this is amazing. Uh, why doesn't everybody do this? <laughs> this is incredible. And uh and I just stuck with me. I, um, I built my first business in, in Murfreesboro and, and over a 15-year period of time, built one of the larger landscaping companies in the Tennessee region, getting that business over 150 employees, around $10 million a year in revenue and sold it. So my point is growing up in Middle Tennessee, it was a, it was a vibrant local economy. There was lots of opportunity. The town was growing. So I was able to grow my business around the town. And I, I think uh, I think where you start your business matters. And and I was very very lucky to grow up in Tennessee because it afforded me a lot of opportunities to build my first company. And I went to college here, and it took me seven years to to, to graduate college because uh, I went at night and mowed yards uh, during the day. Stuck with that and got that done, and and used what little I learned in business school and college to grow and sell that company. And now uh, my second business, GreenPal, which is a tech company, is uh, is built in Nashville, Tennessee one of the few consumer tech uh, products to come out of Nashville. So we're proud of that. Yeah, that's exciting. So I have to ask two questions. One, your dad came in and made you do that. And as a, as a dad of, they're not, well, I guess one of them still a, t- a teenager. I've got a 22 year old and a 19 year old, but I, it's not that far removed that my kids were teenagers. So I, I remember very vividly going into bedrooms and saying, get off your butt and do something. Right. <laughs> so but what I, what I want to know though, is was your dad also an entrepreneur or what did he do professionally? So my dad was a military guy. He spent 20 years in the army and 
So growing up, we moved around a little bit and, and, and wound up in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, which is outside of Nashville to the northern part of the state. And then he retired in 1990, and then he went to the private sector into manufacturing. And uh, I guess you say uh, I learned a lot of my work ethic from him because he he worked his butt off uh, at any career that he had. You know, I saw him getting up at four or five o'clock in the morning every morning and, and to go to work. And so I got my work ethic from him uh, and my mother. But I was the first entrepreneur, I guess you could say, in the family. I know, you know, the idea of running and owning your own business was not one that that we thought of, was not one that I learned from from my family members. Uh, I just kind of fell into it. And, you know, when I was growing that lawn mowing business, it, it was always giving me more opportunities than I was going to get into in the private, you know, in like the the career, uh, I guess, path that a lot of my contemporaries were taking. You know, I, I when I graduated college, I had to make a decision. Was was I going to be a lawn guy the rest of my life? I didn't really want to be. Uh, or was I going to go into the job market and take a pay cut? <laughs> I was making more money mowing yards and going to school at night than people who were graduating and, and starting the starting their careers. And so I thought, you know, I'm just going to see where this, you know, how far I can take this, you know, um, how, how big I can grow this business. And luckily, I, I took that path. And I think you know, looking back, you know, the lawnmowing business is not a real sexy business. It's not a real, it's not a real glamorous business. And I think there's correlation between the least glamorous your business, the greater your chances of success. And that's certainly how it was for me. Just kind of put my nose down and started working real hard and built a real good team around me and little by little built that into an eight-figure company. Yeah, no, I, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. The reality is Landon, my business partner, and I, most most of the most successful business owners that we work with in our business, in, in our business are quote unquote blue collar business owners. Uh, the reality is there's there's an opportunity to make gobs and gobs of money in those businesses. And unfortunately, or fortunately for you know whoever that entrepreneur is, there's a lot of blue collar businesses that are just unfortunately not run very well. Right. And so you have some sort of a background or you can really work at making sure that your blue collar business runs professionally, then that gives you a major leg up compared to your competition. No business is easy, especially, you know, a lot of your hand-to-hand combat style of businesses, your blue collar businesses, service-based businesses, they're going to be hard. But if you're willing to to work harder and smarter than your competitors, and these days almost uh, think like a tech company, if, if you're willing to implement technology in your business in certain key places to make it run smoother, to give a better customer experience to your customers and your competitors are, maybe even like think mod, like in terms of a modern sense and in, in, in an old industry, you can really carve out a strong niche for yourself and you can, you can really grow a business quickly um, because your competitors aren't thinking that way. They're thinking like, you know, 2005 or 2010, as if you're thinking like 2022, you can really break in and create a seven, eight figure business over five or 10 years. You're going by rolling up your sleeves and working smarter and harder. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because we talked about this on an, on an episode maybe a month or two ago um, about how even to this day, you know, I've, I've done some remodeling at my house and some things I do on my own because I grew up in a blue collar family. My dad was a contractor. My grandpa was a farmer. You know, you just learn to do certain things with your hands. And so some things I'll do by myself, one, because I enjoy it and two, because I can. Right. But then there are certain things where it's either I don't enjoy it or it's beyond my scope. And so I'll go out and hire somebody to do it. Well, I've I've had contractors show up at my house to to look at different jobs, whether it's laying tile or painting cabinets or whatever the case may be. And and they're still to this day walking into the house and they just kind of look at a job like this and then say, 1500 bucks, you know, (laughs) They're doing nothing but looking at the job, right? No measurements, no nothing. And it reminds me of a, of a business that I owned, oh gosh, um, probably 15, 16 years ago, residential and commercial painting company. And it was a franchise. So I purchased the franchise. And the reason that I purchased the franchise was one, name recognition was was a big deal. But two, it was the technology that they had in place at the time, right? now. It doesn't seem groundbreaking today, but back then but it back was. Then, back yeah, then it was. 
Yeah, that I walked into a into a, a client's house or a customer's house, and I walked in with my laptop, and I was using a laser measurer, and I was entering the measurements into really an Excel-based spreadsheet program that then generated the bid. But they could see that there was actual measurements that went into it and formulas that went into it. And that alone set us apart from our competition and allowed us to close more jobs and, and obviously run a more profitable business than most of our competitors. Absolutely. And there's still opportunities to think like that today and to systemize your business and to deliver a better customer experience than your competitors are because most of your competitors are still doing it on pen and pad or eyeballing it or leave them a voicemail. Maybe they call you back in three days, things like that. You know, the reality is, is probably 90% of small business owners are, are really just self-employed and, and they don't have a business. You know, they're just really just created a very good job for themselves. And, and that's okay if that's what you want. But if you really want to build a business you got you to gotta think systems and processes. You have to think about how you're going to McDonald's, McDonaldize your business almost. And you know, a book I love about that is The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. It's really all that book is about. It's about working on your business rather than in your business. And, and so I love that book. And then there's one, you know, there's one other third kind of thing that's come, you know, that, that I've come to realize over the last 20 years is you're going to be doing those two things plus one other thing. You're going to be working in the business, you know, running it, delivering the estimates, making sure the customers are happy, you know, working on the business. What are those processes, routines? What are the, what does the spreadsheet look like? What is the program I'm using? And the third thing is, is you're working on yourself. What are the books I'm reading? What, what are the podcasts that I'm listening to? What, what are the seminars that I'm going to? What, you know, on YouTube University, what is, what is the content I'm consuming to level up, to think like a business owner, to think like, like, how am I going to make this you know, it might be $100,000 a year business. How am I going to make it a million dollar a year business and acquiring those skills to, to get yourself from here to there? So it's really three things you're doing at one, at one time if you want to build a business. If you want to just be self-employed, just ride around and, and eyeball estimates and hand them out on a, on a piece of paper. And that's fine if that's all you want. But if you want to build a business, you get, you get to think this way. Yeah, no, and, I, and, and you're absolutely right. The, the reality is if you're just looking to provide yourself a, a job and work for yourself, absolutely nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, our, our country needs people like that, that are willing to go out there. You know, my, my partner Landon and I talked about this maybe a month or two ago about how much money a handyman can make just working themselves, you know, as a handyman, you can make a great living in this world. If you have those, that skill set, and literally all you want to do is just go around and do jobs by yourself. You can make a great living, and that's that's a great way to build your own business, if you will, or really provide yourself a job. But you're absolutely right. If, if you want to take it beyond that, and you expand, and you hire employees to do certain things, and you know you grow your business to an actual enterprise business, there are certain things that you have to put in place. So talk to us about what you did. So let's start by talking about you know your your last company. Now I'm drawing a blank on what it was called, but you can talk about what, what it was that you that you built and what you did inside of that business to build it to 150 employees and 10 million in revenue as a lawn care or a landscaping business. It's almost like looking back, kind of like a video game, really. I mean, you just work one level at a time and you don't worry about anything else other than the level that you're working through. And so I think that's what hangs up a lot of small business owners is, is they think that they're you know, dealing with eight levels, eight, nine, and 10 problems, or they're thinking about levels eight, nine, and 10. What in fact, they're really on levels one, two, and three. And you don't really need to worry about anything else other than getting from level two to three. And so for me, you know, growing my landscape business, just from me and a push mower to me and 90 trucks going out every day, it was really just one level at a time, you know, and a couple of those levels were really hard. Like hiring my first employee was one of the harder the harder moments in growing that business because eventually because essentially you're you're doubling your business in one swoop just one 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 decision you have to literally double your business you have to bring in enough revenue to sustain this person and and what i learned really early on was was that uh, i was in the business of selling man hours that was basically it you know whatever however many man hours i could produce in a day what did it cost me to, to produce those 
And what kind of margin could I make on that? And that was a very hard lesson. Maybe that was level one in the, in the journey of growing that business. And the sad thing is, is a lot of, a lot of new business owners don't understand that. And they just throw bodies at, at, at the problem and wonder why they can't make payroll because they don't really understand that for every labor hour you have out there, you have to be billing the customer and, and capturing that plus, plus margin. And so that's, that was a, that was a hard lesson I had to learn how to get right uh, before I could hire, you know, employee two, three, four, and five. And then after maybe two or three years of that, then I started dealing with, with the next set of, set of levels of the game, you know, and, and as how do we, you know, I, I was able to cobble together 500 grand a year in revenue, but how do I get to a million and two million and three? And I began to realize that, yeah, we were a landscaping company, but we really weren't in the landscaping business. We were in the sales business and we had to figure out how to build a flywheel at the core of the business and how to build a sales team and how to create a sales process for, for our salespeople to run and, and how to, how to present opportunities uh, and pitches to our clientele better than our competitors were. took a long time to hone that and to, and to build that. So maybe that was level four and five and six and then, Level seven and eight were more around, you know, compliance issues and regulatory issues. And, and, you know, we have a hundred plus employees now and we probably need a full-time HR person, but we can't afford one. So how am I going to do that in my spare time? And things like that, you know, were, were challenges of, of, of running a business at that scale. And uh, so as, as you grow, you know, you, 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 you take on bigger problems and you tackle them and you conquer them and, and you just work one level at a time is how I did it, how I, how I grew that company. And and then, and selling it was harder than building it. <laughs> you know, it's like getting that business acquired was a whole other set of challenges that that I had to kind of had to learn as I, as I went through it. Yeah. So I mean, I'll just let you talk about that if you're open to it. I mean, that process I think is is something that a lot of business owners kind of have in the the back of their mind that they want to ultimately sell their business. But first of all, statistics aren't in your favor, right? I mean, the reality is about 5% of all businesses in this country will ever transact. They'll ever sell at all. And so, you know, the reality is if you don't build it the right way and create a market for that business, it's likely not going to ever sell. And that's fine too, right? You don't have to sell the business. You can transfer it to a family member and, you know, there's other ways to, to actually deal with that. But you did. You're one of the few that were able to, to do that. So tell us about that process. What is it that you specifically did to get yourself ready to be sold? And then what was it like going through that due diligence process and then ultimately, you know, affecting transaction? Yeah, it was it was really challenging, a lot, a lot more challenging than I thought it would be. To your point, it, it, it's, it's, it's difficult to pull that off at the small business level, you know, it's probably sub 20 million a year in revenue. As you get bigger, I think it's probably easier, but at the small business level, it's, it's challenging because most small businesses aren't built to sell because it's just, it's, you know, to, to buy a company, you really want to buy a well-oiled, well-humming set of systems. And most small businesses are just kind of organized chaos on a daily basis. And it's hard to, to hand that off to somebody else. And I, I get this question a lot from other small business owners. They're like, no, I, I'm just tired of running my business. I, I, I hate, hate running this company. I'm burnt out on it. I can't make any money at this. So I just want to get rid of it and I want to sell it. Well, good luck. You know, nobody wants to buy your bunch of problems. You know, you, if, if, if you're ever going to sell your business, it's going to be, you, you know, you, you, it's going to be one that you love running, that's profitable, that, that is, is, is not going to be a set of problems for somebody else. And so I had to learn a lot of things the hard way going through selling my company. One was I didn't have a business that was ready to sell. I started working with a broker and, and he started pointing out all of these things that we need to fix about the business. And basically it had to be able to run without me. So it took two years to build in the processes, routines, the, the operating procedures, hire key people at certain places. So, so where the business could run without me. That was uh, hard to kind of take the business down to the studs and, and rebuild it almost. And going through that process, I, I, I fell in love with the business all over again and almost didn't want to sell it, as, as crazy as that sounds. So uh, there's a lot of things you're going to have to do to get it ready to sell. There's a great book called Built to Sell that, that talks about all of these things that you should probably read a couple of times if you ever think about wanting to sell your company. And then the other thing is, is, is running a business. My office somewhere. That's why I'm looking around. It's here in my office. Oh, okay. Nice. Nice. Great book. It's like, 
you know, you should probably, you should probably read that because it's, it's really uh, practical and pragmatic about, about, you know, what's going to be required to pull this off. And the other thing too, is that I didn't understand that I really learned going through the process was, is the manner in which you run your business, if you intend to sell it, is very different than how you would run your business ordinarily. And for me, there was tons of examples of this. Uh, you know, just one one anecdote of probably a hundred was we kept our shop. I once I once toured a Ferrari dealership, and you could eat off the garage floor of a Ferrari dealership. It looks like a it looks like an OR. It looks like an operating room. And uh, it was I was at a conference uh, for 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 the industry. It was in Las Vegas, and I toured toured the Ferrari dealership at the Wynn Hotel in Las Vegas. And so I saw this, and I thought man, that looks really good. You know, our shop should look like that. So like in year five of running my business, I, I had a, I had a, uh, I guess a personal philosophy that if our facility looked as good as that, that it would carry into the quality of our services into the field. Now I could never really close the loop on this and connect the dots on this and, and like prove the ROI on maintaining our shop at that level that it actually delivered to the bottom line. But it was really just kind of how I wanted to run the business. And so what that meant was having a porter at the shop who cleaned up every every day, mopped it every day. We, you know, once every like six months, we would re-finish uh, the floor. We had like these really expensive toolboxes for for our mechanics tools. We had all of these racks and systems that all these tools that our that our that our employees' tools would go in, and like literally, our facility looked not like as good as a Ferrari dealership, but it looked pretty damn good. We spent a lot of money doing that. But, you know, it was kind of part of my personal philosophy as a business owner to do that. Uh, well, what I didn't realize is, is that when you sell a company, you're just going to get a multiple of your, your EBITDA, your, your, your earnings before uh, interest, taxes, and depreciation. And so maybe we spent, I don't know, 10 grand a year, 15 grand a year maintaining the shop floor at, at, at that level. And that ended up probably costing me, you know, $300,000 at the sale because, I didn't really have to spend that money to run the business and I could have saved that money and delivered a, a stronger EBITDA, but, 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 but it, 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 I didn't really want to run it that way. And so that's just one quick anecdote of you're going to run a business differently if you intend to sell it versus if you intend to keep it. And, and if you do that, like if I had done that, like 20 and 20 other places I could have done it, I could have probably had double the outcome I had. So it's a weird little thing. Um, that that I didn't know that I came across uh, going through the process of selling the company. And so if you're thinking about selling your business, you know, you need to like make those changes now and then sell the business in three to five years so you can realize, capture the, the benefit of that. Yeah, you made some some really important points. So I'll, I'll hit the, the last thing first. And you said, you know, if you're going to sell your business, you got to make those changes and plan on selling your business in three to five years. The, the, the reality is, I tell business owners this all the time, that exit planning or succession planning is not an event. It's a process. That's right. right? That's right. And it does take three to five years, really sometimes three to 10 years to get the business ready to be sold the way that you want it to be sold. Right. That's right. And then the other thing that you mentioned is, you know, the, the value of your business is typically a multiple of EBITDA, right? Earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. That's how you come up with a value. And because most businesses in our country have less than a million dollars in earnings or EBITDA each year, your multiple is somewhere typically between zero, right? Because again, most businesses don't sell zero and three times. But once you go above that million in EBITDA, then it starts to go three to six, six to 10, 10 to 12. You know, it really depends on what it is that you do for, you, for your business. And whether or not there's something unique that can't be replicated or you've got some trademark or intellectual property or whatever, you know, that kind of affects that, that's just more complicated than it needs to be. But that's the reality is you've got to, you've got to get to about a million bucks to have a shot really at selling it for something. And then the last thing that was probably the most important thing that you said right at the very beginning is you have to kind of get out of your own way as the owner and you have to be willing to set your business up in a way that it is not dependent on you. 
The business has to be able to run without you. That's how an outside buyer comes in and sees a pathway to owning that business themselves. Because a lot of people, whether it's an investment group or an individual, they want to come in and buy a self-sustaining business. And they're buying that business based on the future cash flows that that business can generate to them. Right. And so it's, those are just really three important concepts that you hit there. And obviously you, you know, you went through it yourself. I didn't see any tears at this point, but I'll bet you there were some tears when you were going through that process and getting it to that point where it was ready. Yeah. It was one of the more challenging things I've done in 22 years of, of running companies was getting that company ready to sell and then getting the transaction done because so much of, like, you know, I ran it 15 years. It was kind of like my personal identity was wrapped up in the company. And and I took a lot of pride in, in, in how that business was run. And so when I sold it, it was no longer mine. And so it was kind of a, a weird kind of melancholy, uh, you know, uh, grieving process almost uh, after getting it sold. It took like six months to a year. And I helped with the transition. I, I still worked there for a few months after the fact to help them, you know, you know get acclimated to running it. Uh, so that was a that was a challenging piece of it that I didn't realize as well that that I would go through. And so, but I guess you know I, I should you know I was so lucky to to get it done anyways. You know, so so you should be so lucky to experience that that piece of it. But that that does happen as well. Is is the what you what what are you going to do now? You know, I didn't have to after I sold it. I I, I made enough off of the proceeds that I didn't have to work anymore. So I was kind of like in a position where I could do whatever I wanted to. So there was almost like a uh, existential crisis also like, okay, what now, <laughs> you know? And I learned really quick that, that there's only so many beaches you can lay on and there's only so much, so much screwing off you can do. And so that's why I started my second company and I, and I took everything I learned about the landscaping business and thought, well, somebody's going to build an app that works like Uber, but for this business, for this, for this industry. And I thought might as well be me. How hard could it be? And so luckily it was, uh, me Vitae as an asset and got in the game and started working on my second company, GreenPal. And so now uh, GreenPal is a 10-year overnight success. Let's open that up. We'll talk about that. We're going to take a quick break to hear a quick call to action from, from our listeners. But I just wanted to kind of make sure I, I put a bow on the last couple of things that you said there. And, and it's really important because we, we do talk to our clients about this as well in that the reality is most business owners, well, actually, before I go there, the, one of the things that you said was in going through that process and getting your business ready to be sold, you fell in love with it all over again and you didn't, you almost didn't want to sell it, right? That's and, right. And a part of that, yeah, part of that is because you, you've professionalized it to a point to where some of the stresses that you were dealing with and that made it burdensome to run that business had gone away because you had offloaded those to other people. And so it, it's important to understand that that's a pathway too, right? I mean, you can give yourself the ability to, to step away from the business for periods of time or work fewer hours per week and still have the benefits of being the business owner, whether it's financially or otherwise, and still just continue to maintain the business, right? You ultimately opted to sell it, but then Here's the other reality, and you lived it. You even went through some of the same examples that we give to, to our business owners that are going through this. You had a struggle afterwards. You know, I think you called it an existential crisis where you thought, man, I'm young. I don't need to work financially, but what am I going to do with my time, right? You can only play so much golf or you can only visit so many beaches, like you said, but the, there are studies out there, and I think it's PricewaterhouseCooper, it might be Ernst & Young, but the majority of business owners, about 18 months after having sold their business, profoundly regret having done so. And it has nothing to do with the financials and them being able to, to be financially free. It has to do with they miss running the business. They miss what comes with that, whether it's you know mentally or ego-wise or whatever. But then they also, they, it was their baby. They built it for years to get to that point. And it's like somebody took their baby away from them and they don't have that baby anymore. And so many do exactly what you've done. And we're going to talk about it after the break. So look forward to talking about GreenPal and what you've done uh, since selling the last one. Awesome. 
Hey there, tycoons. Austin Peterson here, co-host of Tycoons of Small Biz. If you think you have what it takes to be considered a tycoon and you're wondering how you could become a featured guest, please follow and then message us at Tycoons of Small Biz on LinkedIn. We'd love to have a conversation with you to see if it is a mutually good fit. And if so, we'll get you scheduled for an interview. If you're unsure about being a guest on our podcast, but are contemplating selling your business over the next few years and you'd like to know what your business is worth, please also follow us and then message us on LinkedIn for your no-obligation, informal valuation of your business. We look forward to hearing from you, and thanks for listening to the Tycoons of Small Biz podcast. And now, back to today's program. All right, Tycoons, welcome back. We're here with Brian Clayton, CEO and co-founder of Green Pal and uh, former owner of Peachtree Inc. He's one of the largest landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee. We just went through uh, what he did and what he went through to, to actually sell that business back in 2013. And now we're going to talk about what he's done since. So Brian, tell us a little bit about Green Pal. You've, you've made this, this jump that very few entrepreneurs make, right? You've gone from running a blue collar service business to it still has that blue collar tie, but you you really are co-founder and CEO of a tech startup. So tell us what that's been about. Yeah, you, you nailed it. It was a transition from being a blue collar small business owner, very much hand-to-hand combat in the trenches every day, traditional style of business to one of running a tech company. And I guess what got me into the game was was naivete. I didn't really understand how different those two uh, journeys all were and are. And I didn't understand uh, the differences. I just thought, well, you know, an app should exist for the lawn care business. Somebody's going to build it. Why can't it be me? And I thought, literally, like, I didn't understand. I didn't know how to code. I didn't, I'd never built a, a website or an app or anything like that. And so what I really thought was all I had to do was just pay a dev shop to build what I thought the app should be and how it should work. And then I should, I could just market it and, and it would be off and going. And boy, I didn't know what I didn't know. It was one of the saddest things I'd ever done in, in 22 years of business. I, I spent nine months with this dev shop and laid out all of the specs on how we thought this app should work. And it took them a year to build it. And uh, they charged me $150,000 and released the app. And it was a total failure, flop, dead on arrival didn't work, didn't have the features it needed. And I had two co-founders that I recruited to help me build this business. And none of us knew the first thing on, on how to build software. And so after going through that debacle, we realized that, you know, if we were going to build a mobile app, build a, a product and, and, re, and release a system that would allow you to push a button and hire a lawn mowing service, that we were going to have to learn how to build software. That's just all there was to it. And so we started taking online classes, YouTube University. My co-founder went to a boot camp, uh, a nine-month boot camp on how to how to build uh, this, this, uh, what they call the back end, the, the, the systems that make the thing run. And we started working all over again. We rebuilt the whole thing and, and built it how it should be and built it in such a way that we could iterate on top of it and make improvements as we went and hustled up our first 100 customers and started growing it little by little by little. And, and now here we are 10 years in, uh, over 300,000 people use this app nationwide in the United States to get lawn mowing services, doing $30 million a year in revenue, and it's self-funded. We, we haven't taken on any outside capital. So it's been a hell of a journey, but every two or three years running this business, I've evolved into a totally new person. And so that's one of the things I love about it. You know, if you're doing business right, it should cause you to level up every two, three, four years. And I'm a completely different person today than I was 10 years ago when I started this company. And that's one of the reasons why I did it. Yeah. So tell me about the co-founders. How did you guys get connected? How did you guys decide to, to build this? Obviously, I understand, you know, your background in the landscaping company, but tell me about your co-founders. Yeah, so... I thought I had to have co-founders just because when you're starting a tech company, that's what everybody does. And so, uh, you know, I thought, okay, well, the first thing I do is go out and get some co-founders. And ideally, what you do is you get a, you know, if you want to start a tech business, you get a hacker and a hustler. You get somebody that can, understands how to build build the tech piece of it, can can deliver uh, technology to the marketplace. And then you get a hustler, somebody who who is just naturally oriented to drive the business forward. Uh, somebody who is sales oriented, somebody who's process oriented, management oriented. And those two people come together and they work really hard on a project and they birth something from nothing. I had three hustlers, three people that were really hardworking, two guys that I trusted, I knew for a long time. 
and they had a chip on their shoulder that they just really wanted to do something with their life more so than they were doing. And, and they, they, that a business was the vehicle to get them there. And so I, I saw that and knew that, okay, well, these guys are just as crazy as I am. They're, they're going to work their butts off on this thing. Like I will. And I figured that we could just figure everything else as, as out as we went. And that's really how it, how it transpired. We, we became technology entrepreneurs. We studied our, our butts off and learned the skills we had to learn to play this game. And so we were all sufficiently motivated to do that. So I guess, I guess you could say I got lucky. I got two other people to get in the trenches with me that were just willing to do whatever it took to be successful. And part of that was learning the skills we had to learn. That being said, I got very lucky. My, my advice to people maybe listening to this is you don't necessarily have to get a co-founder. You can, you can go it alone for as long as possible. And if, you, if it makes sense to bring on a co-founder, do that. But a lot of times you can contract these things out. You can hire them out, get freelancers. You don't have to have a co-founder to start a business. And I, I think a lot of times people rush to go get a co-founder as a coping mechanism. As like, okay, well, if somebody else is just as crazy enough to do this business, maybe that'll validate uh, my decision to do it. Or, you know, I don't really want to work that hard on this, so I can get a co-founder and maybe take some of the workload. That, that, that's, that's not necessarily the, the best kind of way to look at it. You really uh, should look at it as a marriage. You should look at it as, okay, I want to marry my business soulmate, and I couldn't imagine starting this business without them. And most of the time, you know, people will start a business with somebody after knowing them for a couple of weeks or a month. And, you know, whereas before we get married, we'll, we'll go on like, you know, a year of dates or maybe two years, you know, and then maybe, maybe get engaged for another year. And so it's crazy, but think of it as like as big a decision as getting married, because if the business is successful, you're going to spend more time with this co-founder than you are your actual spouse. It's actually easier to get a divorce than it is to unwind a, a cap table on an established business. So that's my advice around co-founders, you know, is, is go it alone and don't start the business with somebody unless you can't imagine doing it without. Them. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. I mean, I, I, you know, the, the difference between you and most tech startup founders is that you guys haven't taken on any outside investment, right? And, and typically when you see a tech startup, that co-founder is, you've got one guy who's got the idea that's, you know, the main founder, right. And then they'll bring in a co-founder. That's the CTO who's going to actually build the technology. Right. And so they need that because they've got to go out and raise money to build what it is that they're trying to build. And no outside money is interested in investing in a tech startup that doesn't have a CTO that can actually build what you're proposing to build. Right. The, the difference that you guys had was you, you had your own funding because you had just had an exit that was successful and gave you that opportunity to do that. Not everybody has that flexibility or that opportunity, but I, I agree with you 100% on the co-founder deal, whether it's a tech startup or any business. The, the reality is if you don't need a business partner or you don't feel like you can't do it without them, then there's no reason to have that, that co-founder. Yeah, that's a, it's a very good yeah. point. And, and, and dovetailing off your point around the fund, the, the funding of it, let's say you want, say you're considering starting a business with, with, with a co-founder and, and ideally they, they are bringing a different skill set than you have to the table. So maybe it's like you, you have the idea, you're the, you're the, you're the MBA, you're the business guy. And then, and then you want to bring in the CTO, the person that knows how to build software. That's a good, obviously that's a good match. Uh, because you're bringing different skill sets to the table. But the way you can kind of validate if you want to start this business with that person, just imagine if you had $10 million in the bank, would you strike them a check? Would you, would you cut them a check for $10 million today to start this business with you? And if the answer is no, don't start the business with them. Because ultimately, one day, their equity is going to be worth at least $10 million. Or you're going to be like, working, you're, you're going to be like running your, your butt off to, to raise $5 million or $10 million. And their equity is, is you know, their, 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 their ownership percentage is, is the same as the dilution you're going to take for, for that capital. And so look at it like, like you're going to write them a check for $10 million to start the business with you, because ultimately that's what their equity is going to be worth in some shape or form anyway. If you are, if the answer is yes, I would, then, 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 then let's, let's move forward. If it's no, I don't, I don't love them that much. I don't think they're that great. Then don't do it. Wait. Wait until you find the person. 
because most bad co-founder dynamics kills a lot of startups. Building a product for a market that doesn't exist is what kills most. But a second to that is bad co-founder dynamics. So a couple points I have to I have to hit. So my wife and I did know each other for about two years before we started dating. Knew each other as as friends, colleagues, whatever. But we only dated for six weeks, got engaged, and we're engaged for nine weeks. And we are we have been married for 24 years. So it is awesome. awesome to shorten that time frame. Awesome. <laughs> but, uh, the other point I want to make on that is, you know, so my partner and I, Landon, we've we had our own separate businesses up until about two, two and a half years ago. And we merged our practices together and we did it based on really some of the same principles that you just talked about, right? Because we were both successful in our own right. We, we were building a nice business on our own, but we realized that by serving a few clients together, that we were better together. Yep. And we've seen it take off. I mean, the multiple of, of success and, and revenue and profitability that has taken off in the last two and a half years is because of us being better together. And his skill sets being different than mine, his viewpoints being different than mine, and us being able to better serve our clients. So again, it, it's about complementing each other and understanding, are we better together? Yeah, one plus one should be three or five or a thousand. If it's only two, then, then you might as well try to hire that out. And this stuff's hard. It's hard to know. A lot of times it's a leap of faith. But hopefully, uh, you know, some of my experiences can help people think about it. Um, and at least call out the fact that most of the time people want a co-founder as a coping mechanism. And I was guilty of that. And I just got lucky and it worked out for me. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us what Greenfile is doing on a, on a day-to-day basis. I mean, you've you got 300,000 active users, like you said. That, that tells me just how much you've grown since we had our intake <laughs> call with you because it says 200,000 on the intake, but 300,000 already, about 30 million in revenue. But which is awesome, right? Because that's that's a that's a level that most businesses will never crest, right? But what does the day to day look like? What does the future look like? Where are you trying to go from here? The Jeff Bezos quote: "It's still day one," is really how it feels. You know, even though we we ended our first year back in 2014 with three or four thousand dollars in total revenue and and, and like 20 customers. Um, half of them were were friends and family. And so to go from that to now nationwide, several hundred thousand people doing it, processing, you know, hundred, two hundred thousand dollars a day, it's, it's a, you know, you look back and say, wow, look how far we come. But it really always feels like day one because we have to get to a million users. We we really need to get to a hundred million dollars a year in revenue um, in order to be on the same uh, conversation as a as an Angie's List or Home Advisor or some of these other names in other spaces like Instacart or DoorDash or or even like an Uber or Airbnb. We want to be in the lexicon of the English language where it's like you you don't even think about mowing your own yard or or cold calling somebody off of Facebook. You just use GreenPal because you push a button and somebody does it. So so we have a long way to go. We 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 want to get to 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 those benchmarks. As I start to scale this company, one thing I've learned along the way is that it's important to have these goals, but like, what does that mean? Like the goals almost don't matter. It's, it's, it's like reward and think about the, the, the processes and the systems. Like what is the day-to-day things we're doing and really just worry about that and don't even worry about the goals. It's this concept of, of output metrics and input metrics. And it's, you know, that maybe the output metric is $100 million a year in revenue, what are the input metrics that, that we have to do to get there? Well, you know, we got to grow traffic by 40%. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, we have to create this much more content. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, we got to hire this many more writers and this, this analyst and, and this project manager and this content manager and this designer. And so it's like, so like rewarding the input metrics and not even worrying about the goals or the output metrics. It's a shift in my philosophy that I've had to learn the hard way over the last three or four years. I mean, you've taken a really great step being on Tycoons of Small Biz because that's an input metric, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I love doing I love doing podcast interviews. This is more of a of a fun thing I get to do. It's a hobby of mine. <laughs> yeah. no, 
it's a lot of fun. We love doing it too. And obviously, you know, listening to your story is, is uh, inspiring, but you know, it, it's, it's interesting that you're taking that approach because we did have a conversation earlier this week with a business owner who was convinced that they needed so much more in inventory and they needed so many more employees. And that's where we're going to find our profitability. And, and that's great. It's great to have goals. It's great to, to set goals and, and say, we're going to achieve this by this date. And, and this is how we're going to achieve it. It's all great. Right. But what we have to remember is that increased revenue in most businesses is great at hiding the problems that exist inside of a business. That's right. That's right. Yeah, you fix those things first and then grow. And if that's where you're going to find the most profitability, great. You know your business. This is what I told the guys. You know your business better than I do. And you may absolutely be right about the ideal profitability number being at that revenue number and that number of employees. That's great. But you've got problems here that you've got to solve first. And then we can build to that number and, and make it the best enterprise value business that we can make. And that's one of the, yeah, and you're so right. And that's one of the hardest things about, you know, the, the journey of, of going to 10, 10 figures and beyond is, uh, or eight figures and beyond is, is trying to, uh, at times you have to go backwards to go forwards. And going backwards really sucks. I mean, it's really hard to, to get back, getting the business back to a place where it was working and then building from that foundation is really, really hard to do. Um, I've had to do it a couple of times uh, in the last 22 years. Coaching somebody through that, I imagine, is, is really difficult because there's a, just a lot of, a, a lot of just uh, resistance, mental resistance, resistance of doing that because you feel like you're, you're giving up all this hard work that you've put into the business. But the reality is you have to get it back to a place where it was working and was profitable, then build from that. Otherwise, you're just accelerating something that's not working. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've made that mistake before. Yeah, I mean, I've got a very concrete example. I mean, a business that I purchased several years ago, you know, outside of my main business that I've had for 20 years, I've always owned at least one or two other businesses that are absentee owner. But, you know, my input, my vision, you know, all those sorts of things are really important. And, and I bought a business that was doing as much in monthly revenue when I bought it as it was doing in annual revenue a few years later, but it was more profitable. We literally went from 63 locations to six and we found more profit. And I just, I can't impress upon anybody more the importance of profit as opposed to revenue, right? I mean, stating that you do 30 million revenue, awesome, right? And, and I know I'm preaching to the choir when I say this to you, but revenue numbers impress, they make people think, wow, that's awesome. But profitability is ultimately what matters in a business, that EBITDA number that drives the enterprise value or the profitability that delivers to you as the owner or any investors that any business takes on. That's what really matters. Revenue doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of things. Exactly. And, and, and you learn that the hard way, if, should you ever try to go sell the company, that nothing matters other than that number. And and going back to my my dealership shop floor example, they didn't give a crap about that. They didn't they didn't care that my employees wore a little bit of a higher quality shirt and a little bit of a higher quality cargo pant that I could have gotten out, you know, could have could have gotten away with buying. You know, they didn't care about that. They cared about one thing, and it's that it's that EBITDA number. And so you really, you know you break out of the self-employment mentality and, and getting into the business mentality. These are the, the ways you have to guide your decision-making and profitability really is all that matters. And as small business owners, we're subject to this gravity. You know, we, you know, you, you read about, especially in the tech press, you know, companies like Uber who have never turned a profit, you know, and we think we can run our businesses in such, in such a way as we're not, that's a different game. We're not playing that game. We're, we're down here. We're subject to, to, you know, what I call gravity, the gravity of, 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 of running a small business and, and profitability is king. And it's sometimes it's easy to lose sight of that as crazy as it sounds. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And well, now I just lost my train of thought. I can't remember what I was going to say there. It was really impactful. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I guess let's just, let's just kind of wrap it up with this, Brian, like how do people follow your journey and 
you know, you said the hundred million, you know, revenue that you're looking for, but ultimately what you really care about is that people start to use your name the way that they use Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Instacart, you know, all the apps that we use on a daily basis now, right? I mean, I will more than likely DoorDash dinner tonight because of what I know is, you know, needed to be done. And I do have somebody who does my, my landscaping at my house and the office, right? Which is, which is great, but I'm not currently using, I've, oh, I've got a green pal that, right? So what do you guys need to do in the next, whatever number that is, five years, 10 years, seven years to get to that point to where green pal is, is truly a household name? We believe it's a million users right now. We're at 300,000. So another three X growth, we can be in more households, be in more people's, uh, on the home screen on their smartphone. And we still get 60% of our users through word of mouth. The other 40% to, to half of people come to find out about us just through doing a quick Google search. But over half people that that have heard about us, that try us out, just uh, heard about it from a friend. And so our approach is very much an organic one. It's a, it's a slow grind. Uh, and we believe that if we keep making people happy, keep delighting them in terms of getting this chore done, by pushing a button that that will get there, and so that's what we're looking at. That's what that's that's, that's what we're focused on: a hundred million and in, 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 uh, in revenue and a million users. And it's it's just a matter of time. Yeah. Well, you know, we're kind of out of time, and I think we missed an opportunity to to talk about something that's really impactful, and that's the fact that you know all the apps that we just talked about, including your own at GreenPal, it also gives an opportunity for entrepreneurs to really kind of build their own small businesses, provide themselves with an, with a job, if you will, because of using your app. And how does that make you feel? Oh, that's why I do what I do. It really is. Um, we have story after story after story. You know, uh, Green Pal is able to pay off my student loan debt, or I was able to buy a better uh, lawnmower, and, and now I don't have to walk all day. I read the ride all day, or I was able to put a kid through college, or I was able to save up for a down payment on a home. Like all of these things that that people were able to do in their life because they started working on our platform, and they were able to double and triple their their lawnmowing business within the within a year, is why I get out of bed every morning. I mean, giving people uh, access to really the American dream of running their own business um, is a lot of fun. And, and, and we have over 32,000 of those, those hardworking service professionals that use our platform to run their business. So, and that's my DNA, you know, I spent 15 years in the industry. So that's really why I started the business. I, I saw an opportunity for these folks to plug into a platform and, and accrue information about their business and, and make it to where people could hire them as easy as ordering a book on Amazon. And that's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a really cool, not byproduct, but aspect, I guess, of, of your business, which is which is great. Well, I appreciate let's, that. Yeah, you bet. So let's wrap it up, Brian. Tell people how they can get a hold of you, where they find information about GreenPal, if they want to talk to you personally. What, what do you want them to know? Yeah, so uh, life's too short to mow your own yard. Just go to GreenPal.com. You get hooked up with a good lawn mowing professional in a matter of minutes. Uh, anybody who wants to follow my journey, a uh, hobby of mine is Instagram. I, I post stuff about growing the business and about what I'm up to there. And you can shoot me a DM there at Brian M. Clayton. Awesome. Well, I really appreciated the interview, Brian. Love, love learning more about you and about your business and, and keep up the good work. Thank you, Austin. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. You bet. You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz a podcast for small business owners by small business owners. Join us every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Arizona time for an introduction to another great tycoon. And be sure to follow us on our social media channels for links to all of our episodes and great content.